come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for God's name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at the time and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And God brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. You shall set it down before the Lord uh, your God and bow down before the Lord your God. And then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. And when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of the tithe, giving it to the Levites, the aliens, the orphans, and the widows, so that they may eat their fill within your towns. And then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from the house, and I have given it to the Levites, the resident aliens, the orphans, and the widows in accordance with your entire commandment that you have commanded me. I have neither transgressed nor forgotten any of your commandments. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of the Lord. I can imagine when you woke up this morning, the first thing that popped into your head was, I sure hope when I get to church, the preacher will talk about Deuteronomy. 
I worked in a congregation years ago, and I ran into problems. The problems were that I said the Bible contains stories meant to tell us about who God is and who we are in relationship to God. I, I know that doesn't sound especially controversial, right? And most days I say something more offensive than that right before breakfast, but I mean, what is it, what is it if the Bible isn't a collection of stories? But when this woman heard me say story, what she heard was made-up fairy tales. She, she'd grown up in a conservative church and had very finely calibrated antennae that were set to sort of detect any possible weakening of biblical authority. She was aware of any potential attempt to claim that the Bible isn't 100% accurate. Now, she remained convinced that she held the Christian position on the Bible's essential infallible nature and that anything that didn't quite toe the line was, was an affront to God and a threat to proper theological order. Now, it, it, it will probably come as no surprise to most of you that I thought she was wrong about many things but about this thing in particular. See, she didn't understand that by claiming the Bible as a collection of stories, I wasn't making any claims about whether they were true or false. I, I was merely calling attention to the fact that stories are the way that we construct meaning. Narrative is the, per, the peculiarly human attempt to establish an understandable and meaningful world from what appears to be a series of random events. How, how do we narrate our lives in ways that make sense, not only of our lives, but of the world we live in? When you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, well, what's your story? I mean, you know that they're not asking you to perform something from Dr. Seuss, right? I mean, they aren't seeking information about your favorite campfire yarn. They're asking about who you are. Out of all of the hundreds of thousands of moments in your life, tell us the ones that give us a sense of what makes you tick. Now, it may not have occurred to you before, but that's, that's what history is. It's not just the discipline of stringing together a bunch of facts and dates. It's the act of, of sort of combing through and choosing from the, the billions of episodes that have occurred in a given period of time and then putting together a series of them to form a story that identifies what it would have been like to have existed at that particular moment and to provide some meaning about the nature of that experience. So I tell my students that history is one of the most exciting subjects in the academy. And often they, they give me this sort of dead-eyed gasp of incredulity, right? One that says, man, we knew you were old, but we didn't realize you were also a dope. 
And sometimes an intrepid student will, 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 will sort of pipe up, eh, history is so boring. But I, committed to the pursuit of the mind, plow on, and I say no. Seriously, history isn't boring. You've just had bad history teachers. History isn't just facts and dates. History is merely a form of storytelling. And to the extent that you find history boring, it probably means that you've been subjected to some bad storytellers. I mean, think about it. The, the Spanish word for story is historia. And in French, it's l'histoire, history, right? History tells us where we come from, tells us who our ancestors were and what it means to have inherited a story that gives us a sense of who we are and, therefore, what's expected out of us. That's why history, the way it's typically been done, seems so, so disconnected from our own experience, so, so irrelevant to our lives right now. What do I mean? Well, until recently, the modern discipline of history has, has defaulted to sort of the dominant traditional historiographical method. Now, that sounds like a lot, doesn't it, right? Really, all that means is uh, the, 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 the means by which we study history, the method of study. This method has traditionally been called the great man theory of history. The, the theory is generally thought to be the brainchild of Scottish philosopher and essayist Thomas Carlyle, who, who gave a series of lectures on heroism in 1840, and it was later published under the title of On Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic in History. And this is what he says. Universal history, the history of what man has accomplished in this world is at bottom the history of great men who have worked here. They were the leaders of men, these great ones, the modelers, patterns, and, and in wide sense creators of whatsoever the general mass of men contrive to do or attain. All things that we see standing accomplished in the world are properly the outer material result the practical realization and embodiment of thoughts that dwelt in the great men sent to the world. The soul of the world's history, it may justly be considered, were the history of these, the deeds of great men. In other words, in order to understand where we've come from, we need to pay attention to the great men and the things that the great men we're in the middle of things like politics and war and economics and philosophy, arts, you know, that kind of stuff. And if we tell these stories, we'll not only know what happened in the past, but what it might mean for us in the present, where we come from, who our forebears are, and what it all means for who we are and whom we're supposed to be. Okay, <clears throat> I'm going to stop there before the howls of deafening rage cause our walls crack. Let me ask you this. Do you see, just sort of on the surface, any particular problems with understanding our history and therefore our identities through the prism of 
the great man theory of history. Anything jump out to you, maybe? Yes, there is at least one glaring difficulty in understanding ourselves and our past as the product of great men. It turns out a bunch of us aren't men, and even fewer of us are great. Now, immediately when I say not all of us are men, especially in anticipation of International Women's Day on March 8th, Tuesday, our minds sort of immediately jump to the fact that little over half the world's population has no hope of being a man, let alone a great man. That is to say, telling history as a product of men leaves out the contributions of women, whom I hope we can all agree are at least as necessary to where we've come from, who we are, and what our responsibilities are based on these stories. But that's not all. I mean, another thing throughout much of history, most men weren't viewed as men. Those born male but who didn't own land weren't actually considered men. Indeed, the first draft of the Constitution of the United States, 1787, considered the enslaved person three-fifths of a person. So to recap, women weren't men, the poor and the landless weren't men, people of color weren't men, and consequently the great man theory of history should have been recast as the great white man theory of history. But, since everybody already took for granted that the only history worth telling would have white men as the central characters, well, being explicit about it was not only unnecessary, it was redundant. So, when white people claim, uh, complain about the fact that we set aside a month every year Black History Month or Women's History Month and sort of wondering aloud why there's no White History Month or White Man History Month. And I say, oh, well, yeah, there is. It's called the rest of the calendar. I'm just not being a smart aleck when I say this. I'm being painfully literal, right? But in the middle of the 20th century, there, there, there arose this great new historiographical innovation, a new method for reading history. It was a new movement to construct history, not from the lives and the dealings of great men, but from the experiences of ordinary people using things like popular culture, newspapers, menus, protest literature, the artifacts of everyday life, advertising. Now this new historiographical method is called people's history, or the history from below. And it's an attempt to tell our story in a way that doesn't automatically assume that the folks who always seem to find themselves in history books are, in fact, the most important figures for determining what's important and what life means in a particular place and time. We have other people to look to for that kind of meaning 
telling the story not so that it highlights the needs of the great men, but focuses on the poor and the powerless, on the, on the ordinary people, is precisely how God tells the children of Israel to tell their own history in our text for this morning. What do I mean by that? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, the first thing that the Israelites are supposed to do when they occupy the land that God has promised them is to take an offering of fruit and go to the tabernacle and offer it to God. And then they're supposed to recite their story before God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt. He lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. Now, at first blush, that description, uh, what uh, Gerhard von Rad called Israel's credo, sounds pretty innocuous, right? There's not really any big deal to modern ears. At least it doesn't strike us that way. But it's important to know that a wandering Aramean was my ancestor, a reference to Jacob, was an epithet. It was an admission that Israel came from a bunch of nobodies. According to Brian Jones, the Hebrew word translated wanderer, abad, almost always refers to somebody perishing and desperate, somebody cut off from the community, fading away. It is used elsewhere several times for strayed sheep, which clarifies the connection between wandering and perishing, since a wandering sheep is very soon a dead sheep. And furthermore, in the author's time, the term Aramean had a derogatory connotation. Equivalent today would be the expression something like, a destitute vagrant was my ancestor. In other words, the story of the children of Israel was meant to help them understand their history, not merely as a means of recounting the deeds of great men, but of a desperate community sustained by the love and care of God. Their great men were women <laughs> and the poor, refugees. The noble births and fine breeding of the children of God came from those who haunted back alley dives and homeless camps as imperiled refugees in Egypt. Now, suppose you begin your history with the exploits of the privileged and the powerful. In that case, it's easy to justify organizing your political and economic life around the people born on third base, right? If history is about the, the acts of great men, then it should come as no surprise to us that when we organize our lives, we keep them right in the middle. Their lives are therefore sort of enshrined as the purpose and meaning of true life. But if you begin telling your history by being reminded that you literally came from nowhere and that your ancestors were not really anybody special, 
That makes a difference in what and who you should value, doesn't it? Because here's the thing. Our stories tell us not only who we are, but why who we are forms what we do and who we're responsible for. See, I mean, notice what happens in our text after the people give their offering and then recite their history. See, the offering isn't kept in the tabernacle. It's taken out to the aliens, the orphans, and the widows, so that they may eat their fill within your towns. And then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from the house, from in here, and I have given it to the Levites, the resident aliens, the orphans, and the widows, in accordance with your entire commandment that you've commanded me. See, the reason the children of Israel tell their story about being descendants of a wandering Aramean is to remind them that because the narrative of their past isn't about the great men of history, but about a ragtag band of vulnerable refugees, that their responsibilities, therefore, aren't to the great men of history, but to the strangers in the land, to the orphans and to the widows, to all the people who get left out of almost every other history, but who occupy, if the text is to believe, the very center of God's heart. And notice that sharing the first fruits with the most vulnerable isn't an act of benevolence that springs from the goodness of the hearts of the well-to-do. It's an act commanded by God. According to the story God's people tell themselves about themselves, Offering food to those who don't have any isn't charity, it's justice. And let's be honest, none of this really comes naturally, does it? It's difficult. But that's why God enshrines it in history, embedding it in the very DNA of the people so that they don't ever forget where they come from and therefore for whom they are responsible. So, what does your story say about you? I'll give you a clue. Before it's ever anything else, your story, my story, the story of all those claimed by God is about a nobody from nowhere. And if we continue to tell it to ourselves, we'll never be at a loss in figuring out not only why we're here, but where we ought to be. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. 
Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.